Psalm 12, to the choir master, according to the Shemimeth, a psalm of David. Save, O Lord, for the godly one is gone, for the faithful have vanished from among the children of man. Everyone utters lies to his neighbor, with flattering lips and a double heart they speak. May the Lord cut off all flattering lips, the tongue that makes great boast. Those who say, with our tongue we will prevail, our lips are with us, who is master over us? Because the poor are plundered, because the needy groan, I will now arise, says the Lord. I will place him in the safety for which he longs. The words of the Lord are pure words, like silver refined in a furnace on the ground, purified seven times. You, O Lord, will keep them. You will guard us from this generation forever. On every side the wicked prowl, as vileness is exalted among the children of man. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. May God bless the reading of his word. Well, my memory has grown fuzzy over the past 20 years or so, but I recall a few fall Friday nights when my high school's football team was behind several points when the fourth quarter was nearly over. Murmuring could be heard among the fans in the stand who said things like, I don't think we're going to win today. True, anyone would have thought that our team could not win, but somehow they managed to win. Now, I don't recall who the most valuable player was who managed to get the ball to the end zone in the nick of time against all odds, but somehow it happened. And it was almost like a generic cliche sports movie. Now, not all sports movies are alike, but you know what to expect as you uh, watch several of them. Most, or at least the cheesy family-oriented ori ones that I grew up with and love still today, follow the same template. They are usually about an underdog team of athletic rejects that no one wants to coach. Someone, though, reluctantly agrees to coach them. And after a few practices, Miraculously, the team becomes awfully skilled at their sport, and they go on a winning streak. This team that no one would dare think would win a single game at the beginning of the movie somehow ends up going to the big league championship at the end of the season. The championship begins. Our protagonists are playing against the rival team that has played mean and dirty and cheated throughout the whole movie. Our team gets the tar beaten out of them in the first half, and the team's morale is at an all-time low. Halftime comes, and we see the locker room scene. All the players are ready to throw in the towel and forfeit because everything seems hopeless. The coach expresses his disappointment and tells everyone they could do better. He believes in them and reminds them that they didn't come this far just to lose. If they give it all they have and work as a team, they can win. Well, the pep talk, pep talk works, and the team busts out of the locker room, pumped up, excited, and ready to go at it again. The other team is overconfident about their performance in the first half and lets its guard down. Our beloved team 
goes gangbusters for the remainder of the game and makes the winning shot just as the final buzzer sounds. The crowd of fans goes wild, and a big celebration follows at the end of the movie. Oh, but a setup for a sequel follows, which will repackage the same basic plot in a different setting for your viewing pleasure. Well, if you think about it, God's people have experienced similar things. There have been times in our history when the forces of evil seem too strong and all seems hopeless for the church. There have been times of persecution of varying intensity throughout time and today. People have twisted what is true and persecuted those who stood for God's truth. The early New Testament era church experienced intense persecution under some emperors. God's people in the Old Testament faced times when foreign nations with their mighty armies and false gods seemed to overpower them. There are, there are times when God's people seem to be in a situation taken from a cliche sports movie. They seem to be overpowered by the enemy. Everything seems hopeless and they need a miracle of divine intervention to save them. Somehow, against the odds, God comes through for them and proves his faithfulness. God preserves his people. Now today, we might think that the situations we face may indicate that the church is doomed to failure. For years now, we have witnessed a decline in church memberships. Now, I'm not referring to our church specifically, but there is a general trend of decline among American churches, and it has many people worried. Experts try to identify the cause, and many reasons have been identified. American culture has changed significantly within the past 70 years or so. Now, understand, it's not like 1950-something, or for me, 1980-something, was a perfect ideal time. We all tend to interpret the past through rose-tinted glasses. It ends up that most people think that the so-called good old days were during their childhood when they were innocent, oblivious to all that was going on in the world around them, and they had no care in the world. The only ideal time and place in history was before the fall in the Garden of Eden. So I don't intend to suggest that we return to some kind of ideal time in American culture uh, that never existed in the first place. I'll be honest with you. But, no doubt, we have seen a sharp decline away from biblical principles and disregard and apathy, if not anger and hostility at times, towards God's perfect moral law among our fellow Americans. Over the past couple of years, we have seen personal, national, and international tragedies. We have seen wars, and we have heard rumors of wars. We see all sorts of immoral relationships being celebrated and promoted. There is unjustified violence and lawlessness that we have not seen in many ages. It is now cool and trendy to blaspheme God and call it art. And in general, people are doing what they think is right in their own eyes. At least those who remain committed to the truth, wondering where the faithful are. Today, we might think that the situations we face indicate that the church is doomed to failure. 
But as we read Psalm 12, we see that David faced a similar situation. There was a time when he felt lonely and abandoned because the godly had gone away and the faithful had vanished. David wrote this psalm to express his trust in the Lord through song, that God would not allow evil to persist forever. The psalm has been preserved for us in the Bible today so that we might have the same assurance. We can have the same confidence David had. God will not permit the evils we see and experience today to continue forever. God will preserve us, even if we have to endure the vileness and the wickedness in the meantime. He will judge and exclude the wicked from the kingdom of redeemed people that he is building. Now let's take a look at the psalm. The psalm has two major sections. Verses 1 through 4 form the first. We see David crying out to God as he sees wickedness all around him. Verses 5 through 8 form the second major section. We hear what the Lord will do in response to David's plea. But first, let's look at the title, or verse 0, if you will, to gain some context. We see that the psalm is to the choir master. The psalm is according to the Shemimeth. The meaning of Shemimeth is unclear and the subject of discussion, but it is likely some kind of musical mode or pattern. Some scholars have suggested an eight-stringed instrument. Of course, we don't have a musical recording and the tune is likely lost to history. It would be interesting to hear what it originally sounded like, but alas, we will have to leave it to our imaginations if we wish to hear what it sounded like. We see that this psalm is of David. Tradition holds that David is the actual author. If so, some commentators have suggested he wrote it during the reign of King Saul, when it seemed that wickedness and evil were found all throughout the land. Then again, if not, someone else may have written it in David's style, no less inspired by the Holy Spirit. It's difficult to determine an exact date of authorship and setting. But seeing no reason to doubt tradition, we'll, we will assume that David is the author. We should note that other psalms that cry out to God for deliverance from enemies surround Psalm 12. But now for the body of the psalm. Verses 1 through 4. Godly people abhor evil and wickedness. Let's look at verse 1. David cries out to the Lord for deliverance, but it is not just any Lord or God that he cries out to. According to the Hebrew text, the proper name for the one true God is used here. David cries out because the godly one is gone. In the following line, he explains, for the faithful have vanished. And what are these faith faithless people like? Verse 2 says, they are liars with flattering lips and a double heart. The Hebrew for flattering here is smoothness. And double heart in Hebrew refers to the nature of their inner selves, mind, will, or heart. Their inner selves are evil, godless, and deceitful. Now, you know these types of people. They have a way with words that lets them get what they want by deceiving, exploiting, or taking advantage of others with evil intent. Author William Scott Downey once said, Flattery is refined deception. It is the froth of language. 
It is the alcohol of social intercourse. It is the prescription of the subtle and the nectar of fools. David observed lying as he wrote this psalm, but we can put other sins in the place of lying as we read this. Lust, greed, pride, unrighteous anger, unjustified violence, lawlessness, etc., and on and on. Aren't these sins commonplace today as well? These are just as wicked. Today, we can call upon the same God David called upon. God still rescues, saves, and delivers us today from our sins, temptations, stresses, and addictions. David continues with verses 3 and 4 with his desire to see the ungodly's destruction. Here he uses some rather gruesome, although figurative imagery. May the Lord cut off all flattering lips. Here, cutting off the lips and tongue is a metaphor for removal from the community. Such evils have no place in God's kingdom. David then introduces a new type of sinner, the tongue that makes great boast. David prays that those who make great boast would also be cut off. And who are these with tongues that make great boast? These people do not acknowledge God. They claim no one, not even God himself, can call them into account. They show incredible hubris, claiming they are their own masters, thinking they can ignore God's commands and decide what is right in their own eyes. That is what humankind has done since Adam and Eve sinned and fell from grace in the Garden of Eden. David saw these sort of things, and it stirred him up. In Psalm 11, which some scholars regard as the companion to Psalm 12, David did not mince words about what the wicked and violent deserve. In verses 4 through 7, you'll flip over back to Psalm 11. He says, The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes see. His eyelids test the children of man. The Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked and the ones who love violence. Let him rain coals on the wicked. Fire and sulfur and a scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteous deeds. The upright shall behold his face. So when was the last time you heard or uttered a prayer like that? When we read the Psalms, we tend to focus on those that are light and uplifting and encouraging to us. And nothing wrong with that, of course but we tend to ignore those with lyrics that sound like they might have come from a heavy metal song. Uh, should we preach these psalms? Should we pray like this too? Just as David did? Well, of course. No one is sad or disappointed when the villain is killed off in a movie. No one was sad upon hearing that Adolf Hitler had died. And still no one in their right mind has any pity for him. And we should likewise rejoice in the judgment of the, weak, uh, judgment of the wicked. When we see or experience wickedness, we sh should also be shocked. And it should stir us up. Now we are in a series on the Psalms, and though I'd like to read all 176 verses of Psalm 119 now, I won't due to time.
But in that psalm, the psalmist expresses his delight in keeping and obeying God's moral law. Remember that we are not saved by keeping God's law, however. In our natural state, we are opposed to keeping it. But by saving us and by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, he has instilled in us a desire within us to keep it. And it's not the fear of hell itself that makes us obey, although we might admit that is a good practical man-centered reason to obey. It is a new birth within that makes us see the world differently. And we desire to obey God's law because his law is good. God established order when he created the universe, and sin and rebellion is against the order he has made. When we see or experience sin, we should be filled with disgust, not with a holier-than-everyone-else type of attitude, for we've all deserved God's wrath, but because we hate to see the disorder that sin causes. Sin destroys lives. It can destroy others' lives and our relationships with others. Praise God that he chose to save us and give us new life, restore order in our broken lives, and call us to repentance. It is by the grace of God that we become aware of our sins to begin with. And once he breathes life into our souls that were once dead to him, we are regenerated. We become a new creation that desires to pursue righteous living. But the weeds of sin may still creep into our lives. Even if we are saved, it is not like the Holy Spirit overrides our will. We may yet sin. But if we give in to the temptation to sin, we desire to repent. Even if we are in a state of grace with our salvation secured. Because the Spirit convicts us and prompts us to repent. Now some Christians have difficulty coming to terms with this. They feel the struggle between obeying God and choosing sin. They think something is wrong with them and they are losing their salvation. Paul, writing to the Romans in chapter 7 of that letter, describes his own disgust with uh, sinning, knowing it is wrong while wanting to do what is right. And so if you are one of those Christians who want to know what kind of additional spiritual power you need to plug yourself into to get rid of this painful tension, I'm sorry. There's no such thing. You already have God the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Godhead himself, working in you. You don't need anything else. What more could be necessary? These feelings are to be expected. This is what sanctification feels like. Let me put it this way. If you've ever got a splinter caught in your finger, underneath your skin, you know that it's painful to be stuck with one to begin with, right? But it can be even more painful to try to remove it. It can hurt to take a needle or pen and work it out. It can feel better to just leave it alone and ignore it. But that's not good. That's not healthy. You'll get infected that way. The splinter has to come out, and it's for your own good, even if it hurts. And so that pain, that tension, that disgust you feel over your sins or the Holy Spirit by grace removing the splinters and the thorns and the ensnaring briars of sin from our souls. 
And he will see to it that each and every one comes out. So that you are made healthy and whole again. And after a while, you'll learn not to do those painful things. Just, you'll no longer desire them. Just like you learn to avoid rubbing your hand against a rough piece of wood. Or avoid the briar patch in the woods. Because those things are painful and you no longer desire them. As for everyone else, God has left them to choose their way and sin as they wish. And they alone are responsible for their sins and they deserve God's wrath. That may not be the popular thing to say. It's certainly not the popular conception of God as this long bearded grandfatherly figure up in the sky who grants your every wish. You just ask hard enough. Willful rebellion without coercion against God's good ways has no place in society or the kingdom that he is building. Let's look at the second and final section in verses 5 through 8. Verse 5 is the focal point of the entire psalm. We hear from the Lord himself. The Lord says that he will judge the wicked. The Lord's words contrast sharply with those of the wicked in verse 4. In the original setting, the poor and needy are being taken advantage of, exploited and oppressed. The Lord says, because the poor are plundered, because the needy groan, I will now arise. I will place him in the safety for which he longs. When he says, I will now rise up, God actively intervenes on behalf of his people. Then David, in verse 6, comments on the reliability of God's promises. David compares God's words to precious metals that have been purified and refined. And David uses the number seven, a symbolic number of perfection in Bible times, to describe just how flawless God's words are. David essentially says that God's words are perfectly flawless. There's no reason to doubt God's promises. Of course, to be clear, David is not suggesting that, that God's promises become pure through a process. Instead, he compares God's promises to the end product of the refining process that precious metals require. David replies to the Lord in a prayerful song in the final two verses. In verse 7, he sings, You, O Lord, will keep them. It is here that David is assured that he is not alone after all. David is assured that the Lord will guard his people from a wicked generation. David is convinced of this even as he acknowledges in verse 8 how the wicked prowl on every side as foulness is exalted among the children of man. David trusted fully in God despite all that he faced. Likewise, an anonymous author wrote a poem some time ago about trusting the Lord while facing adversity. And it goes like this. Trust him when dark doubts assail thee. Trust him when thy strength is small. Trust him when to simply trust him seems the hardest thing of all. Trust him, he is ever faithful. Trust him, for his will is best. Trust him, for the heart of Jesus is the only place of rest. Trust him, through cloud or sunshine, all thy cares upon him cast, till the storms of life are over, till the trusting days are past. 
And so what are we to do when it seems like all is a lost cause? When it seems like sin and evil are spreading faster than the gospel, what are we to do? What are we to do when the church has dwindled and it seems like the faithful have vanished? We trust in God, knowing that he hears our cries. God knows all, and God sees all, and he ordains all that comes to pass on this earth for his purposes. He is not the author of sin, but he works all things together for good without violating our will, both the good and the bad, including our own sins. Just because he might not choose to snap his fingers and make it all go away immediately does not mean that he's not doing anything about it. We read about all the violence that occurred in Old Testament times. The faithful who lived during those times had to have wondered why those things were happening. They likely did not understand why God would allow those things. Consider the Jewish people being led into exile at the hands of the Babylonians. Did they question God? Did they think the wicked would ultimately prevail? Likely so. Did they fully understand what God was doing? Likely not. But look at what has happened, even if it was over several centuries. It helped shape an environment right for the coming of the Messiah, Jesus. And now, look at how the world has been transformed since the coming of Christ. We look at the year zero at the first coming of Christ, and now look at the year 2022. Globally, we have come a long way. Now, I don't mean to downplay all the bad things that have gone on in the meantime. I don't mean to downplay the personal trials you are facing today. Yes, bad things are happening right now, and yes, there is wickedness. But let's step outside our bubble for a moment. And let's look at the overall global big picture. The Center for the Study of Global Christianity at Gordon Cornwell Theological Seminary recently reports that religious faith is growing faster than the irreligious globally. Christianity continues to grow worldwide, especially in Africa and Asia, with Latin America expected to join their ranks by 2050. Christianity is becoming less concentrated and spreading out over the earth more. The percentage of non-Christians who know a Christian is climbing. In 1900, more than half of the world's population was not evangelized. That has now fallen to 28% as of this year. More than 90 million Bibles will be printed this year, 2022. Fewer Christians are dying as martyrs for their faith today. Jesus entrusted 12 men to continue the movement he started. They did not always understand at first what they were being taught. They and their own disciples did not always get along with one another. But somehow, despite all the controversies and growing pains it endured, despite its own hypocrisy at some times, it has grown into a global movement of billions of people. Somehow that movement came to North America, little old Rutherford County, North Carolina, where this tiny church broadcast the gospel on YouTube to a national audience weekly. We have a podcast 
People from all over the world listened to it and downloaded it. So don't tell me we don't have any impact just because we're small. Don't tell me that we're losing. Christ is winning. Amen. Even if we see the American church being pruned, the gospel is being accepted and taking root abroad. And if we are being pruned, it's for our own good. As a child, I was baffled why people would prune trees. I thought they were killing it. It's like, if you want it to live, let it just grow, you know. Just let it go. But pruning shapes them up. It gets rid of dead parts that hinder healthy growth. The first verse of the Bible, Genesis 1, 1, says that God created the heavens and the earth in the beginning. That is not just a passing acknowledgement that God created them. Yes, he created heaven. Yes, he created earth. But it is also saying that God created heaven and earth together. God's space and humankind's space overlapping one another. But when Adam and Eve sinned, God expelled them from the space as their punishment. Heaven and earth separated. And ever since, it has been God's good pleasure and desire to restore heaven and earth. And this is made possible by his son, Jesus Christ, who has paid the penalty of death by crucifixion for his chosen people and was then raised to life three days later on that first Easter so that we may not face God's wrath as we are being transformed and restored by his good pleasure and grace through faith alone. God is preserving a people for himself. Heaven and earth are coming together, and its reunion will culminate with the second coming of Christ, the resurrection of the dead, and the final judgment of the wicked. We will see this new heaven and earth like we see in the final chapters of Revelation. This kingdom started with Adam and Eve, despite their re rebellion, and then through the lineage of their third son, Seth, and then through Noah's, Adam's, Moses's, and David's, and on and on. We now, as Gentiles, are being grafted into this kingdom. And some people today, under the sound of my voice, might not have confessed their sins before God and received his spirit and made Jesus Lord of their life. But they are disgusted with their sins and hate the evil ways of this world. If that is you, and you feel the Holy Spirit convicting you, please see one of us today before you leave. We would be delighted to tell you more. In closing, I will read Hebrews 12, 28 through 29. Let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe for our God is a consuming fire. All praise and glory to God and His Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you for listening to another message from the pulpit ministry of Main Street Baptist Church in Spindale, North Carolina. I hope that your soul has been edified as a result of hearing the Word of God preached and that God will continue to be glorified in your life as you worship Jesus. If you have any questions about the message you heard today, feel free to uh, check us out online and send an email. You can find us at www.mainstreetspindale.com or you can call us directly at 
286-2291. Hope you have a wonderful day. God bless.